It is June 1st, 2019, and we're pleased to welcome from Lubbock, Texas, Andy Hedges. Howdy, Andy. Howdy. So, just finished your matinee performance, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your guitar playing to start things out. Um, I noticed your phrasing, your melody phrasing, uh, and everything on the guitar was real crisp and clean. I enjoyed listening to that playing. It was wonderful. Thank you. Um, and just sort of by way of a compliment and a question here, that's, am I wrong to say that's probably not sort of traditional cowboy style guitar that would accompany those songs? Have you adapted a little bit of that to the music? Yes. I mean, you know, when you're talking about traditional cowboy music, most of it probably would have been sung a cappella or maybe accompanied with a fiddle or a banjo, you know, would probably be more traditional. And we, when you start listening even to recorded music from the 1920s, you know, the first cowboy singers who were recorded, people like Carl T. Sprague and Jules Verne Allen and uh, those those kind of guys, they weren't usually the greatest guitar players, a little, little bit of simpler accompaniment. Uh, so yeah, I've kind of adapted that, but in more, you know, maybe more modern times, uh, people I think of as traditional cowboy singers that have influenced my guitar playing are uh, people like Don Edwards and Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who are kind of taking sort of the Carter family guitar style, uh, along with, uh, you know, Jack being a great uh, finger picker as well, you know, so kind of the Carter family adapted into flat picking like a lot of people do. And then the uh, kind of Mississippi John Hurt uh, type finger picking, kind of those two styles are probably the biggest influences on on me, and that's kind of come through particularly Don Edwards and Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Of course, lots of other people, you know, listening over the years. Now, do you use a thumb pick as well, or are you just bare fingers? I didn't. I was sitting on the side, so I really didn't know. Yeah, just uh, just a flat pick and bare fingers. Sometimes I, I do some finger picking with my thumb, but not with a thumb pick. And sometimes I do some hybrid picking with a flat pick in my fingers. Well, as I mentioned, it was just a real clean, crisp sound. The melodies were uh, clear and could follow along uh, real nicely. I was just I really enjoyed it. it Thank was you. Nice. Appreciate was nice. that. Uh, so, um, let's talk a little bit about sort of what brought you here to Mountain View, uh, in, you know, in a name that would be Glenn Orland. Yeah, Glenn Orland, uh, one of the, really the last of the old time cowboy singers, Glenn Orland, who, uh, you know, you don't think of Mountain View, Arkansas as being the hometown of cowboy music, but it really was in Glenn Orland. And uh, for your listeners who might not uh, know much about Glenn, he was born in Minnesota. I think his family moved out to California, and he left home when he was very young, maybe 16 or something, and became a buckaroo in Nevada and then rodeoed around and uh, cowboyed in different places. But from from really the very beginning was playing guitar, singing songs, and picking up songs in his travels. And he was discovered at some point by a folklorist and you know started singing it folk festivals back in the 50s and 60s and uh, and had a book published by, uh, I believe is the uh, University of Illinois Press called The Hellbound Train, his collection of uh, songs, you know, songs he had actually collected in his travels, his versions of those songs and his stories about where they came from. 
and of course he made a lot of LPs and he uh, bought land here in Mountain View in the 50s I think because he you know wanted his own place to raise cattle and this was a, at that time a cheap place to come by land and live cheaper probably than trying to do that out west. Yeah, I'd always wondered, you know, do you, how about, do you know about how big his ranch was out there? I don't really know. I, I, uh, on my trip out here, I went and found his old house and barn, which, of course, belongs to someone else now, and I just uh, drove by. Uh, but I was wondering how many acres he had, which I don't know, which that's, uh, you know, that's uh, not a question. That's not a polite question to ask in the uh, ranch and world. Really? You don't ask someone the size of their place or how many. No kidding. Uh, how many cows they own? No, that's uh, that's yeah, definitely uh, putting your foot in foot in your mouth. Okay. If that's your first question. Duly so, noted. Yeah. Duly noted. Uh, well, and along those lines, I always thought it was interesting. You know, as you did mention, you know, land was probably very inexpensive in those days, and here in Stone County in the fifties, <clears throat> I think you would have been lucky to find a paved road. Uh, back then. I mean, there might have been one or two in that area, but even Highway 9 uh, south that goes up Dodd Mountain to where he was, was unpaved uh, even into the 60s. Uh, So it's just interesting to think how I've often wondered, I never asked him sort of how he found his way here and what was the appeal, but it was probably cheap land and someplace he could call home and build his homestead. That's as far as I know. That's kind of what yeah. I had heard. Uh, yeah, and he built that place out there. You know, he built that house himself. It's a little stone house that looks kind of out of place, uh, just because it doesn't look like the other homes you might see out here. And it's a uh, really artistic. Every every little uh, you know door has a some you know a drawing or carving or something on it. Because Glenn was also a an artist. You know, he did a lot of drawings and. I believe he actually, I read that he has supported himself in his travels sometimes, uh, painting signs, you know, in windows and, uh, you know, welcoming the rodeos into town, things like that. Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm a little sorry you weren't able to get in there and, and see the place. Yeah, me too. I tried to look down, look up the owners, and uh, apparently it's their winter home, and they're back in New York. So maybe another time maybe another I can get time. out here and maybe another see time. the inside. There's a great uh, documentary. You maybe have seen it that uh, part of it is about Glenn that Hal Cannon from the Western Folklife Center made where he visits Glenn in his home. And so there's some great footage, uh, which is, you know, available on the web. So uh, you m- told a great story uh, about how you met Glenn um, going out to the Elko gathering. You were, I guess you said about 19 or 20 or something like that, went out for the first time and took a bus from Salt Lake out to Elko. And what better way, as you said, to get an introduction to the gathering than to sit by Glenn himself for the entire bus ride. Did you even get a word in? No, I don't think I did. I think I just listened <laughs> to Glenn tell stories and, uh, you know, tried to soak it up. And, you know, he was just such a, a dry, unassuming kind of a character, but very funny. And, of course, always had a joke uh, or a one-liner or a story and, and, of course, as a performer, uh, just seemed to have an endless repertoire of songs and recitations, you know, many of which I don't know that they were ever recorded, certainly not on his on his records. So, yeah, he was just uh, really remarkable. And again, you know, I said kind of the last of the old time cowboy singers. He really was in the sense that he uh, 
you know, he wasn't just learning these songs uh, from recordings or, uh, you know, like a lot of us kind of more revivalist type performers uh, would do now. He was, uh, you know, picking these up in his travels and really collecting them and, uh, and lived the life, you know. So he was just really a, an old school, traditional cowboy singer, the likes of which we uh, probably won't ever see again. I'm going to remind myself to remind you that um, after we part ways after this weekend to stay in touch, and I'll make it a point to get some of the archive recordings we've got of Glenn uh, to you. I would love that. Yeah, I yeah, know. I, I would love really that. I appreciate it. Anything I can get of his, yeah. I thoroughly uh, enjoy. I mean, I think we have stuff, you know, probably going back to the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Because I think you mentioned you heard the show we did uh, on Glenn. Mm-hmm. Right, I did, um, and so I mean, there's that, and of course, the music we featured on there, uh, and probably some other gems that are hidden in the archives that we weren't able to feature on that show. So I'd love to get you in touch with some of that. Thank you. Um, as an outsider to this kind of music and and style of poetry, I've often thought the appeal uh, to folks like you is. Um, maybe a little bit uh, on the romantic side of wanting to kind of relive and sort of insert yourself in that unique time of American history. Was that the appeal to you of cowboy music and poetry, or did something else speak to you that, that got you interested in it? Well, I think there was several things that happened for me, and, and part of it was that, I guess, that romantic appeal. You know, the, the cowboys, this kind of universal icon and my dad uh was a bull rider before i came along kind of in his younger days and and he'd become a primitive baptist pastor by the time i was born but i think i got my love for all things cowboy from my dad because i I grew up you know hearing his rodeo stories and and he uh, appreciated the old western movies and old western music and I was homeschooled and lived out kind of out in the middle of nowhere, somewhat sheltered from popular culture. And so I grew up watching a lot of those old westerns and just old movies in general from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And the music I mostly listened to was music that, you know, my dad would pick up a cassette here and there of uh, western songs, you know, Marty Robbins, Gunfighter Ballads and Trail Songs, and Tex Ritter and Jimmy Rogers, Johnny Horton, you know, Gene Autry, all that. And so I loved that music as a kid, and uh, and we were, you know I grew up around cows and horses, and so any exposure I actually had to the real thing, I also really uh, was uh, you know attracted to that and loved it. And I think maybe part of the appeal of cowboy poetry and cowboy music, at least for me, and and I think other people too, is you kind of have that fascination from being a kid and you know loving those old movies. And that old music and it kind of being the mythological version of the West, but it's very nostalgic. But then when you encounter the real thing, uh, it kind of feeds that childhood interest, but also opens your eyes to this uh, world of uh, people who who make their living on the land, uh, raising cattle from the back of a horse and this culture that is just incredibly deep and rich and diverse and uh you know much more 
interesting than those old movies would have uh, led anyone to believe. And and so it's, uh, you know, it goes way beyond that nostalgic part that it might start with. And uh, it's uh, something, I think like any area of, you know, folklore and culture that you start digging into it and the, the stories are so incredible and the people are incredible and uh, has this connection to uh, the land and uh, men and women who are uh, trying to be uh, stewards of the land and and this rich culture that has uh, music and poetry and art that's being passed down. And it's not even just one uh, time in our history, but you know something that's alive and well today. And so you go to the Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada, and it's not just a celebration of the past, it's a celebration of the here and now and this culture that is uh, threatened, I would say, but alive and yeah. flourishing in a lot of ways. And uh, so all of that was just really, uh, when I realized that existed, when I kind of discovered this modern renaissance of cowboy poetry and music, and was hearing people like uh, Nevada, Buckaroo, Waddy Mitchell reciting poetry he had written, and then also these old poems that had been passed down that he was still reciting. That stuff just uh, really moved me. And, you know, I have a hard time, I guess, putting it in, into words why I was so grabbed by it, but I was. I just absolutely loved it whenever I heard it. And so I started memorizing poems and collecting old songs and poetry and, you know, old song books and teaching myself to play the guitar and and trying to seek out these people like uh, Waddy Mitchell and Glenn Orland and Don Edwards. And, you know, I wanted to wanted to see the guys who were, you know, making this music and reciting and writing these poems and, and get to know them. And, and I did. And, and then was eventually on stage with them. So that's kind of a long way maybe of answering, answering that. But, uh, yeah, it's just a uh, it's a it's a rich culture that's uh you know stimulating in so many ways it uh, you know it's entertaining it's uh intellectually uh challenging and uh, there's the historical part of it but it's also something that's alive today and uh so it's it's a great it's a great thing and i think most people when they become aware of it uh, find some kind of connecting point you know where uh where uh, this culture has something something to do with them you know whether it's a you know that their their family used to farm or ranch or used to you know be a rural live in a rural community um you know i think uh people hear these stories and these songs and there's something deep within them that it resonates with them you know i think and i think we all kind of have that uh desire to have a stronger connection to the land and to our history and you know and our you know these kind of older cultures and so i think the cowboy and ranching uh culture speaks to that it's it's funny you mentioned that um how there's a thread um and how it touches a lot of people in different ways <clears throat> my wife for example um is an artist and she likes to do sort of western landscapes she's always been drawn to that now she's from east tennessee uh but something about the the big sky and the large landscapes appealed to her as an artist and uh recently she's just been devouring zane gray novels 
uh, by the dozen. <laughs> I mean, she, I literally got a box of, you know, uh, 20 uh, in the mail last week or a couple of weeks ago. It's just been zipping through them. But you might tell her, I don't remember which shop it was, but I saw a whole set of them at one of the antique stores here oh, in town. Really? Yeah, of a, a match set of, you know, there's maybe 20, uh, you know, Zane Gray hardbacks. So she might go okay, find those. <laughs> let her know tonight. She'll probably be there on Monday. Yeah, so I wish I remembered which uh, store they were in. But... Well, another thing I wanted to mention was, and um, we should talk about him too, uh, is Don Edwards, but um, he was here a few years ago. And one sort of interesting thing uh, he told me that caught my attention was the um, he sort of mentioned the different, um, for lack of a better word, sort of jobs that were around this culture. So, you know, there were the ranchers, the cowboys, the buckaroos, you know, people had uh, different jobs and things. And one specifically, as Don was telling me, was actually sort of the cowboy singer who would travel the trail uh, go and follow the uh, cattle drives and actually work as an entertainer uh, for the cattle drives. Uh, and I found that real interesting. It was sort of kind of like the modern or the uh, Western equivalent of like an itinerant bluesman of the day, but out West. Yeah. Is that right? Well, I'm sure if Don said it was, it is. Uh, you know, I think what Don was probably referring to is, you know, it, it wasn't something I don't think that was quite as well established as some of these other musical traditions. But when you start reading these uh, these accounts of that time, uh, you do hear these, you do read about that. Uh, you know, Will C. Barnes, who's someone Don quotes a lot, you know, talks about... Uh, the entertainment that would be in the saloons and these uh, trail driving towns and said it would mostly be uh, uh, black guys playing guitars and banjos from Texas that would be singing some of these uh, old time cowboy songs. You had uh, Jack Thorpe, who I talked about in my show today, but the, the first guy to collect cowboy songs, and who was a sure enough cowboy collecting these songs, but he was also a musician himself and uh, played uh, what in the book was called a, a he called it a, a banjo mandolin and he even tells the story about he uh, at some point encountered a, a medicine show who i think one of the performers was uh sick or something but they needed another musician and so he performs with the with the medicine show you know in one of these cow towns and they ask him to go you know become a part of their show but he declines and so they were also intersecting with that you know the the minstrel shows and the medicine shows of that time and that's when we're talking about the trail driving era and and of course the cowboys themselves were uh singing songs you know they weren't packing guitars around but they uh were singing songs uh probably for the most part to entertain themselves or you know there was the night herding songs and people debate that whether or not they actually sang uh oh really on uh you know, night guard, but there's accounts of them doing that. I, I think maybe more than anything was to keep themselves awake and entertained, but might have also, you know, soothed the cattle. And, uh, you know, it was, and it was fascinating. I'm not really answering your question, no, but that's fine. It's, a, yeah. it's a fascinating time because all these different cultures were coming together because you had the English and Scottish and Irish guys going up the trail bringing their songs, changing them into cowboy songs. And then you had all of the freed slaves, uh, black guys who were going up the trail. And that was the music that would 
eventually become the blues. You know, this is before the blues was a genre during the trail driving era, era. But you had those guys, and so their music was contributing to that. Then you also had a lot of poetry being written, either by cowboys or people out west who were writing about the culture and poems being published in, uh, you know, these regional newspapers and journals. And those were quickly being adapted into this oral tradition. You know, someone would find this poem and learn it and maybe set a tune to it or maybe recite it. And it would just start getting passed around and eventually be collected. And people think oh, it was a traditional piece. And it kind of had become a traditional piece. But uh, a lot of those now, you know, we're realizing were written by these, uh, you know, various kind of early cowboy poets. And so you had all of that kind of coming together, all these musical traditions and then the poetry, and it just generated this incredible body of work. And there's also some Spanish influence uh, as well. Definitely. Uh, we hear that in Glenn's music. Yeah, yeah, no question. Of course, that's such an influence on the culture itself. I mean, almost all of the lingo, you know, and the, the gear, you know, comes from the Spanish vaqueros. And so you had that as well. Yeah, so so many, so many cultures coming together, and uh, and then I'm like Don. I'm kind of fascinated by that idea of the itinerant musicians and the minstrels, and I uh, I have a couple albums out under the title Cowboy Songster, which is kind of using that idea of uh, you know just the the solo performer who uh, travels around and uh, isn't necessarily known for the songs he writes, but for his repertoire of all kinds of uh, songs, you know, all kinds of traditional songs and novelty songs. And and that also uh, ties into the early cowboy singers who were, who were recorded, you know, people like uh, Carl T. Sprague and Jules Verne Allen and uh, Carson J. Robeson. And some of those guys were kind of connected to the vaudeville uh, shows and you know some of that kind of uh, you know kind of that era of recorded cowboy music before the Hollywood thing came in, and so those guys didn't just do cowboy songs; they might sing a blues number, or uh, and they they certainly did novelty songs. And Glenn Orland was in that tradition too. You know, he learned a lot of those songs. He would do things like Barnacle Bill the Sailor, yeah, and uh, I wish I was single again, and uh, and he would sing you know the the Spanish songs do these recitations, and so it's a uh, it's just a neat tradition that encompasses a, a lot of different influences. Let me ask you this: It just got me thinking about this because, as I mentioned, this this sort of whole idea of this really transports uh, one back to that day. If you really sort of get into it in your mind, and you can imagine the 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 trail and the wide open skies, I just wonder. This is kind of an off-the-wall question, but if somebody came to you and said, Andy, I'm gonna, you've got a choice here. I'm going to put you in a time machine, and I'll f zip you back to, I don't know, what would be a good, 1820 or something. And you could go live, leave your life today, but go back and live out the rest of your life at that time to experience it. Would you do it? <laughs> Well, I don't know if I would do it or not. <laughs> uh, maybe if I could take my family with right, me. There you go. Okay. Uh, but I would love to be around uh, some of those times you know, where we don't have 
recordings of the music. And right. All we can really do is kind of imagine what it was like. That, yeah, that's kind and, of the the and, allure of that. and especially that trail driving era. You know, the eighteen sixties through the eighteen eighties. Uh, I would love to. You know, I wish we had recordings of uh, what those guys sounded like. You know, I think about that story about Jack Thorpe in 1889 being somewhere out in West Texas or Eastern New Mexico, and he, he rides up on a camp of black cowboys, and here's a guy playing a banjo and singing a song about a cutting horse named Dodging Joe, which he didn't collect for whatever reason. We don't have it. There's no uh, any version of uh, of that song. And so that's one I've always thought, man, I wished I could hear that song that inspired Jack Thorpe. And I wish other people could hear it too. And I wish more people could just hear that story because you think about cowboy music and most people think of the Hollywood thing or they think of Nashville country music. But it's really, they don't, nothing to do. They don't think about a black cowboy playing a banjo. You know, that's not the image, but that's uh, such a part of uh of this music and well, so let's met you let's uh jump off on that in a minute because uh we talked about dom flemons earlier yeah dom's uh, a good friend and there you go doing I mean, great work in that vein he's got isn't the he's got an album black cowboy that's right, right. yeah it's yeah terrific and yeah and that's a whole uh you know and dom has pointed all this out so wonderfully on, on that record but that's such a part of this culture and a part of the music in fact there's so many of the kind of classic cowboy songs when you go back and read either jack thorpe's or uh, john lomax's accounts of when they first heard these songs it was often from uh, a black cowboy huh. and uh which makes sense because i think you know we all know that culture is so uh, incredibly musical and so that often might be the you know, the most musical person on a crew of cowboys and uh, and so, yeah, there's just story after story, whether it's Home on the Range or Goodbye Old Paint and, uh, you know, so many songs that uh, even if it's not something you can tell from hearing it, like it may not necessarily sound like a blues song, uh, when you read the account of who was originally singing it was often a, a, a African-American. And so that's certainly not been... A, covered in the movies yeah. or, uh, you know, isn't the history that a lot of people hear. And just it's not the image that you think of when you hear about cowboy music. And, of course, cowboy music, it's almost points to even a bigger problem with how that's thought of is that it's not often thought of as folk music. It's thought of as something more commercial, the Hollywood thing. Because anyone sees Gene Autry and they know that's not uh, – folk music you know this is put on this guy's wearing a costume yeah. and he's uh you know singing these composed songs that are great and i love that but it's not the uh folk music of of that culture and so because of that cowboy music kind of gets brushed aside in the folklore world uh you know and, and isn't thought of in the same way as you know maybe the appalachian uh you know mountain music or the mississippi uh, Delta blues or, uh, you know, those things that people realize that, Hey, this is the music of our place where yeah. everything comes from. And when you're talking about out West, uh, cowboy music is a kind of the cornerstone of, uh, where, you know, country and Western and, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, music really does originate from. Have you done any gigs with Don played together? Done any 
work together at all? Oh, many times. Oh, I'd love. Oh, it'd be neat to get you two here for a gig. Uh, you know, you're talking about Dom. Dom, or, yes. yeah, yeah, yes. many, many times, yeah, with Dom. In fact, me and Dom have a. Uh, we've kind of put together a. We've only done this show one time, but a a, a show called the Cowboy Songsters Traveling Show, and you know, Dom kind of has a moniker, the American Songster, and I kind of have this moniker as the Cowboy Songster, and so we have a show where we uh, will both be on stage together and just swap songs, maybe have a special guest who joins us and basically talk about everything me and you are talking about yeah. right now and play these songs and uh, you know, back each other up some. And, you know, Dom will play the bones with me or the banjo or, or well, that whatever. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, it would be I fun can, to do that yeah, here at the, at the folks at the folk yeah, center. It would be great. And I can imagine uh, Dom is uh, such a, I don't use this term, you know, pejoratively in any way, but he's just such an intellectual guy. I mean, he's a deep thinker. Oh, he is. He's a true uh, scholar of uh, of the music. Yeah. And, I don't uh, want to take away from his, you know, saying he's intellectual, that he's not a musician or anything. Well, he's, a, yeah, he's also an incredible yeah. musician and incredibly entertaining yeah. and uh, puts on a great show. So he's uh, just a great guy. And he's doing really important work, uh, you know, with his music, pointing out and, you know, shining a light on the African-American uh, origins of country music and yeah. now cowboy music. And so, yeah, I really really admire him and love working with him let's uh quickly touch on the other d and that's a uh, don edwards uh, and we sort of jumped into that uh, on that story uh don was telling me about the <clears throat> musicians on the trails but uh don uh as we were talking earlier sort of recently retired uh as a performer uh he's getting up there in the years and isn't able to perform um like he wants to uh and so that's his decision to make but also, uh, somebody uh, who was a big influence on you, and uh, in the times I've heard him saying, I just uh, always enjoyed his yodeling and his yipping, uh, if, if that's the right term. You know, when he gets up into that falsetto, yeah, uh, just what a what a great entertainer and a unique individual. I've often said that I think Don Edwards is the finest cowboy singer of all time, and I say that because. He uh, he could he can play the old uh, traditional cowboy songs in a manner that's uh, just so authentic and believable and gritty and real. But he, he can go right from that to singing a Marty Robbins song, you know. And you feel like, man, that's about maybe as good as Marty could have done it. And he can uh, play uh, you know the Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, Sons of the Pioneers tunes and do those beautifully. And he can sing uh, Western Swing, and he's an incredible guitar player who can play whatever the song needs, you know, any of those styles, and uh, yeah, and just has an incredible voice, and also like Dom Flemons, uh, you know, a scholar of the music, and uh, so he's just really, really wonderful. It's it's you can't really overestimate how important he is to. Uh, cowboy music and that genre and the work he's done over the last uh, 50 years. And uh, to top all that off, he's uh, out of everyone I've met in the, the music business, he's just a genuinely nice, kind man, a, a, tr a true gentleman. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and he's always been supportive of me and, you know, done uh, good things for me. And uh, 
I can't say enough good things about Don Edwards. He's just wonderful. Well, and let me just get in a plug here and say that um, <clears throat> you can go through the Ozark Islands radio archives and find uh, the show we did on Don Edwards for folks who are listening to us. Uh, there's a, some great performances from him here at the Folk Center. Let's uh, sort of circle back uh, to what you've got going on here recently. Uh, you've got your own podcast. I do, Cowboy Crossroads. And it's, uh, of course, available anywhere folks listen to podcasts. And uh, I interview other cowboy singers and poets and folk singers and working cowboys and uh, try to do long, in-depth interviews and then edit those into hopefully an enjoyable show and put them out there. So So tell me how you—I'm curious how you got involved in that— as a you know radio person myself, you know just how do you handle you do this by phone? Uh, you know how do you get in touch with folks? You know that kind of stuff. I'm curious about the nuts and bolts a little bit there. Yeah, well, I I, I got into this. I was listening to some other podcasts where uh, folks were interviewing musicians. The one I really love is Otis Gibbs' show called "Thanks for Giving a Damn," where he interviews. Uh, all these people uh, kind of centered around Nashville for the most part, but it's all these, uh, you know, session players and producers and different people who were in the room when something really cool was happening and just records them telling their stories. And then he kind of edits himself out of it and they're just really enjoyable to listen to. And I had thought, man, someone should do that with, uh, in the cowboy world, you know, with cowboy poetry and with these old time cowboy singers and songwriters and, uh, so I finally decided I should just uh, start a podcast because I know all these guys. And and so uh, it, it's all me. There's no one else except for my wife who does a lot of, you know, editing and listening and helping. Uh, you know, there's no one else on the payroll. And uh, I do all of my interviews in person. And mostly it's guys that I already know. And so I, it usually happens when we're at a gig or if I'm passing through their town or they're passing through my town, I uh, schedule a, schedule an interview and I've got a mobile uh, recording rig, you know, with my laptop that's always uh, always with me when I travel. Did you bring it here? Yeah, I did. I don't have any interviews, but, you know, I just kind of, that's yeah. just sort of my protocol. Sure. You just bring it. You never know who you that's might right. Uh, that's right. encounter. And, yeah, so I just get interviews uh, when I can and then I edit them and try to release about one a month. And so it's a real grassroots kind of thing. I have a, a a real dedicated, enthusiastic following, you know, people who listen to that. How many have you done to date? I think I uh, just released maybe episode 46, something like that. First year I did even, I did maybe two a month. So this is my third year. And yeah, I've got 40-something interviews. I know my 50th episode will be coming out sometime this year. There's a lot to dig into there. I know, you know, it's, uh, when you f- find a good podcast, it's on. I don't watch TV a lot, but um, you know that the whole term of what they call it binge watching or whatever. Yeah, I you can do that easily with the podcast, especially <laughs> right. if you have some, you know, uh, driving time. Uh, yeah, it's really enjoyable. It's a great, yeah. uh, great thing. It's essentially just good radio that you can listen to whenever is convenient for you. You don't have to get up at six in the morning to hear your favorite show, you know, so <laughs> that's exactly. And, and if you <laughs> go to sleep or get interrupted, you can always, you know, it's always there for you where you stopped listening. So Pick it's, it right it's back a, up. it's a great format. 
Um, uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, I thought was an interesting story before we wrap it up here, uh, was the Gibson guitar uh, that you're playing. Uh, you had a sort of um, sort of interesting little niche history bit on that uh, guitar. Tell me about it. Yeah, well, it's a it's a 1943 Gibson LG2, and I don't really know anything about this specific guitar, but it's a it's one of the guitars that was Gibson guitars was built during World War II, and only guitars that were built during the war have the banner on the headstock that says uh, only a Gibson is good enough. And kind of the stories I understand it, those guitars that became known as, you know, banner guitars and, you know, wartime Gibsons kind of gained a reputation as being some of the more desirable Gibsons uh, to have. And then it uh, was discovered that uh, all of the men had gone to war and it was mostly women who were making guitars at the Gibson factory. And I think a lot of women who had no prior experience making guitars and there's a fellow named John Thomas who wrote a wonderful book called The Kalamazoo Gals that uh, everyone should go read, where he did all this research, interviewed uh, women uh, from that time who were working in the factory during the war, you know, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where the Gibson factory uh, was located. And he even x-rayed uh, guitars made uh, before, during, and after the war uh, to you know, look at the braces and the, you know, craftsmanship. And he kind of makes the case that the reason these guitars stand out is that you had these women who uh, were quilters and, uh, you know, seamstresses and, you know, doing this fine, uh, you know, work with their hands and their fingers and and that they were just a little more uh, precise with, you know, carving and shaving braces and putting these guitars together. And it just resulted in uh, exceptional guitars that have uh you know stood out over the years so well, it works works for you doesn't it yeah i love i <laughs> truly love that uh little gibson that i play and yeah they're wonderful guitars and i just i love uh i love vintage guitars uh uh of almost any sort they're pretty interesting to me and i love the way they sound and the way they feel and the way they smell and yep. every everything about them they just uh <laughs> feel funny. right to me you mentioned the smell that's so funny well, it's my one friend, of the first things I'll get an old guitar and yeah. I'll stick my nose in the sound hole just to sort of it transports you back. Yeah, it does. You know, I, I think I've maybe always done that, but my friend Hal Cannon, a uh, great musician and folklorist from Utah, he uh, he told me that, that that's the first thing he does when he picks up a vintage guitar is smells it, and I realized I think I might do that too, and I certainly do now. And there's something <laughs> to that, you know. They really. Uh, the smell uh, certainly uh, is a, a part of it. It's such, you know, smell is such a sort of elusive sense. Um, it, it's different in sight than sight or hearing or touch in that uh, there isn't a, a, a clear physical part about it. So the olfactories, I just know sometimes I smell things and it has a way of transporting you or taking you somewhere, conjuring up memories or whatever that you don't get with those other senses. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. It is. So it is. You'll have to smell my Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, no, that's a great line right there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay. Uh, so wrapping things up, um, 
you've got some uh tell i guess folks want to find uh music uh want to check out the podcast uh, i'm just going to assume andyhedges.com that's, something, something that's right yeah um, well, look, Andy, it's been uh, a pleasure having you here. Uh, really appreciate uh, what you're doing. As we talked uh, a little bit earlier today, uh, you really are, um, you know, one of the last of the Mohicans here uh, carrying on this tradition. So uh, continued success and thanks for all you do. Thanks, Darren. Thanks for having me. I, I'm real honored to be here and I just love uh, what you're doing with the radio show and the, this uh Ozark Folk Center is a remarkable venue. I'm just so glad to know that a place like this exists in the world where uh, this music and uh, these artisans and, uh, you know, every everything is kind of here and has a, has a home and a place where people are learning about this and where this music can thrive is just beautiful. Every community should be so blessed to have such a place we are fortunate and stay tuned folks uh we're going to try to get uh the andy hedges uh, dom flemings gig in the works that sounds like a lot of fun thank you andy thanks darren you bet